And it's a matter of being obedient. It's a matter, as we are saying in this sermon series, of us saying yes to God rather than saying no to that special purpose he has for our lives. He gave you your life. Your life is not your own. If you've heard me preach in this church before, you've heard me say that before. It's a common theme I like to reiterate with people so that it hopefully will resonate in your mind and your heart. Your life is not your own. God gave you life. Now you give it back to him. We know that God owns it all anyway. Any possessions, any talents, uh, your testimony, the way you're living your life before men and women, this is a testimony to God. It all points back to God. I like to, anytime I preach, anytime I speak on any Christian topic, I always start with the first word, God. If you heard me, if you were listening, other than me saying I'm hot, that, that wasn't a good start. My first word of the actual message was, God wants to use you. And that's why I was more than happy to be included in the sermon series so that Dave didn't have to preach today. He's not here, obviously. Uh, and so that I could join in encouraging you and exhorting you to say yes to God through an analysis of a, a person in the Bible, in my case, who initially said, in so many words, no, but eventually came around to the way of thinking that I need to say yes. God is going to be persistent here until I do say yes. In fact, the sermon series, so I get this right, the sermon series is entitled Learning to Say Yes to God from People Who Said No. And so my point today about Moses, who is the person I, I chose, we all had our choice. Aaron chose a person. Uh, Dave has had a couple, three. Mark Doss is preaching here next week. I immediately chose Moses because Moses is a very fascinating person from the Old Testament to me in the ways uh, in his life were, were so interesting. The segments of his life were for the first 40 years he was in Egypt. The next 40 years he was out as a shepherd out in the wilderness, basically living an obscure life as a shepherd. And then the last 40 years of his 120 years on this earth, he was the, the great leader of Israel, of leading the people out of captivity and into, toward the promise. They didn't even get to come to the promised lands. And that's a whole other message, you know, why this great patriarch could see the land but never was allowed to enter. Only Joshua and Caleb allowed to go into the promised land. For today, though, we need to think about the big idea as it relates to Moses. And I don't know if I put that in the sermon notes. There, there are on the bulletin some main divisions of this message and even some questions. Hopefully we'll have time that you'll be able to discuss at your tables. That's one of the, I think, the advantages of us sitting around a circle and looking at each other eyeball to eyeball is when we have a little bit of time, let's make the messages, the sermons, a little bit more interactive rather than you're just sitting and getting. How do we apply what we're attempting to preach about in the Bible? So the main point is this, the one you should take away from the message. Moses was not immediately obedient to God. So we too should learn from that message, and we should be immediately obedient to God and not make excuses. From the example of Moses, be immediately obedient. Do not make excuses. So to do that, if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible app on your phone, on your tablet, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus. The main part of the message is going to come from Exodus 3 and 4, but I have to set a context in Exodus 1. In fact, even rewind back to the end of Genesis. We know that Joseph, the story of Joseph, a great story. We know the patriarchs. We know that God in this passage today is going to declare himself to be the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that Abraham was given a promise, a covenant by God, that he would make the people be numbered as greater than the, than the grains of, of sand on, a, on, a, on the ocean shore, in the ocean, that he was going to make a great people out of the Israelites. And then the line after him, Abraham, Isaac, his son, Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, Joseph, who basically rescued the people from famine, and Israel was facing a famine, and through the circuitous amount of events where Joseph could have very easily been bitter, but allowed himself to be used by God after finally getting out of prison, out of slavery, he came up and he rose up only this, second only to Pharaoh himself, d- developed a plan through the sheer grace of God, through a vision that he interpreted to, to store up grain and food so that people would not perish. So between Joseph and Moses, there's 400 years. 400 years where we don't hear about anybody. No leadership, no one rose up. Well, the reason no one rose up is because the Israelites were in captivity. If you look at Exodus 1, Joseph died at the, in the first paragraph of that chapter, and then the people multiplied. So God was still working, even if there was no leader that came after Joseph. And a new king came over Egypt, that's in verse 8, who did not know Joseph and did not understand what Joseph had done for all the people of all that time in the known world. And so what he did is he said, these people are getting too big for us. They're growing too numerous. We've got to get, figure out a way to be shrewd and suppress them. And so let's make them our slaves. And that will do it. That will discourage them. Well, it didn't, it didn't discourage God. God was still working. Yeah, no leader. No mention of any name of any leader. But God caused the people, verse 12 it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. No human plan, no human being can thwart the purposes of God. Even without a leader, even without at this situation, seemingly a, an optimistic outlook in their lives, God was multiplying the people and he was growing them, even when they were working as slaves. So Pharaoh decides, wow, this is a bad deal. I thought I could suppress them. They just keep multiplying like crazy in number. Uh, Here's what we'll do. We'll kill all the boys. So he goes to the Hebrew midlot wives. Every time there's a boy that's born, kill the boy. Girl's born, it's okay. Let Let her be born. But if a boy is born, make sure you kill the babies, the Israelites. Well, God was having no part of that. The midwives defied Pharaoh. Can you imagine how dangerous that would have been at that time to defy the leadership at the time? They did because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Praise the Lord that they did. Otherwise, the story would have turned out much differently. And God blessed the midwives. He gave them a bunch of children, and he continued to multiply the population of the Israelites. Amazing thing. He multiplied and grew them very strong. So that, that wasn't evil enough for Pharaoh to declare the death of all the male children of Israel, the Israelites. He decided in verse 22, he commanded all his people. It wasn't just the Israelites anymore. It was the Egyptians as well. He said, every son that is born to the Hebrews, in other words, anybody who's a midwife, anybody who sees that a Hebrew son is born, you will cast that baby into the Nile. 
Right? So it wasn't the midwives alone. It was the Egyptian people who would also be duplicitous with Pharaoh to try to figure out a way that they could limit the population. Well, even that didn't work. And this is where the story of Moses uh, comes from. The, his mother takes him, puts him in a basket, throws him in the Nile. So it, by all, ostensibly, she has honored the wishes of Pharaoh. I threw him into the Nile, but he was protected, well protected. And she waited to see what was going to happen. And sure enough, the events of God are amazing. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes up on the shore, rescues Moses, takes pity on him, and says, wow, we need to raise this child. Who could nurse the baby? Who could take care of the baby? So she goes to the Hebrews, and who does she go to? She goes to Moses' very mother. In a delicious irony, Moses is raised by his mother who is paid by Pharaoh to raise her own baby. That's God. That's cool events that you can't explain any other way than God being involved in it. And so he was raised up in Pharaoh's home. And that's an, an awesome thing. And then at around 40, we learn this through Acts. Around 40, I'm in verse 11 of chapter 2. Moses grows up. He's out and he's witnessing a conflict that's occurring uh, between an Egyptian and a Jew. And he underst must understand, we don't know that much detail of this at this point, he must understand this is his people. He wants to stand up and be an advocate for his people. So he kills the Egyptian. If you remember the story, he buries him in the sand, attempting to believe that he can cover up this murder. He essentially commits murder because at one point he looks both ways and then he kills the man. So he knows that what he's doing, there's a conscience in him that he shouldn't have done what he did. But he did it. He, he stood up for his people. And then the next day, he sees two Jewish people, two Israelites fighting. And he says, what is this? You should be in unity. You shouldn't be fighting. That's not his words. Those are my words. I'm interpreting it that way. And the one man says to him, who, who are you? I mean, he still sees him as an Egyptian, raised in royalty, raised with all the amenities and the, the privileges, the honors the ease of, the, of Pharaoh's court. Who are you? And he realizes that he's been discovered. He actually says, this man, this Jewish man says, hey, you, you killed this person yesterday. And so he runs for the hills. He goes up into the wilderness, and that's where he becomes a shepherd. Through a series of events, he finds his wife, Zipporah, I challenge any of you who are having children somewhere in the future to name one of your women, your young women, Zipporah. I kind of like that school word, Zipporah. He marries and he settles into an obscure life. Interesting. Was he obscure? Was he wasting time? Was God wasting time with him? Heavens no. This is not a time where God was not continuing to work in and through him. He was. Because at his 80th year, he calls him out, and he does that in chapter 3. And that's where I want to get even more specific about what's happening here. Chapter 3, he encounters the burning bush. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, later known as Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Yeah, that would be one of those occurrences where you'd kind of think, hmm, something weird going on here. I've got to check this out. This is not something you see every day. 
Something's happening. I gotta go, I gotta go see what is happening. In fact, some commentators say this may be the very incarnation of Christ presenting himself. Whether we believe that or not, we know that it's going to be God. He's going to reveal himself here. And God includes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we know what's happening here. God is about to present himself to Moses. That's what happens in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said. And and, and he said, here I am. (laughs) Could you imagine God calling you out of a burning bush that doesn't, isn't consumed by fire? I mean, I can't even imagine that. I, mean, I want you to try to put yourself into the situation and, and think how dramatic this was. He uses his name twice, and anytime we read in the Bible where a name is used twice, it's for dramatic emphasis. God knows how to get your attention. He should only need to do it once. I'm not saying he necessarily needs to see his name twice here to get his attention. His attention has already gotten. But he wants to punctuate the fact that he's calling to, to Moses Moses, Moses, come now, come not, uh, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. I can understand that. Can you understand that? I would be afraid to look at this rare natural phenomenon of, of against the laws of what nature should be, for a bush to burn and not burn up, that the bush should have burned up, but that God now all of a sudden manifests himself. He appears in this very dramatic way to announce himself to Moses. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen all the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen this oppression which have, with which the, oppression, the Egyptians oppressed them." So he has seen them, he's seen his people, he's heard them, and he knows them. He's aware of, he's concerned about, he's aching about, he's, he, he is empathizing with his people. So he's setting a framework here as to what he's, gonna about, he's about to challenge Moses to do. And that's what he does in verse 10. Come, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt Right? There's the command. Simple enough. Come. All right? Does he answer yes immediately? No, he doesn't. But we can also understand his response. We're human beings. We have human frailties as well. Verse 11, Moses said to God, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt? So God responded. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve the God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? A little bit of a delay tactic here. He's trying to figure out how he can establish credibility in the minds of his fellow Israelites, who he has not seen for 40 years. You can understand a little bit why he's hesitant about this call to action by God. It seems pretty dramatic for a man who's been out in the wilderness for 40 years. So in verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give his people, this people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you should not be empty, but each woman shall ask of his neighbor, of her neighbor, and all women, and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Wow, God just played it all out, didn't he? He just gave them the whole plan. Here it is. This is how it's going to play out. You're going to go, and you're going to say, let's go. We're leaving, we're leaving Egypt. We're going to the promised land. And the Pharaoh's going to say, no, nope, not going to happen. And God says, well, I'm going to make it turn this way. I'm going to turn the tide on this. I can overcome Pharaoh or any other object in your way. And in fact, so much so that the women are going to ask for jewelry and gold and everything that they want. And eventually, you're going to have to say, stop, enough. You've given us enough. You will have plundered the Egyptians. Now, we have the benefit of knowing that's exactly what happens. Moses is trying to figure this all out right now in real time. He's being approached by God with this amazing mission in life, for his life, a purpose for his life that he never imagined. It's fully understandable why he is thinking this seems very illogical, that, that his life would be playing out this way. So I'm not going to be too hard on Moses for his hesitancy initially. At one point, though, we need to be a little bit hard on him. We're going to read that here in a moment because he's coming up with excuses here eventually as we head into chapter 4. Okay, so here's how Moses asks, answers this. He knows the whole scenario. He knows God's going to do it. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. God's the great promise keeper. We can depend on him. So all he should really have to say to us, go do this. I'm going to make this happen. And then we should just go do it. But we're human beings, aren't we? We don't respond in the way that we should. We say no or we make excuses, and that's what Moses is about to do. He, he, he throws the big butt in his way again. I always like to call it the big butt. Here's the big butt. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. All right, mm, okay, I'm just one man. I got one testimony. Really? A burning butch? He said you're going to come back after being away for 40 years and take us out of of Egypt, away from slavery, and he's going to make that happen. We're going to end up in the promised land. Uh, the Lord responds with a good answer. This is it. He gives him plenty of testimony. In fact, three, in fact. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. That would get my attention, too. I'd be a little bit afraid of a serpent. Those of us in this room who don't like snakes, even the person who likes the snakes the most is not a thrilling deal anyway. But if you definitely don't like snakes, that's not something you want to be close to. The snake, the staff, it turns into a snake. He's afraid, understandably so. Look what he does, though, how he turns that back. Lord said to Moses, 
put out your hand and catch it by the tail, which is a big act of courage too, isn't it? You ever think you're going to try to grab a snake by the tail? My sole thought is the way that's going to come out is not so good. I'm grabbing the tail and that head's coming right from my hand. That's the natural, logical deal. But at least Moses shows some courage and he does it. So he, he takes, takes it and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand again. That's a pretty cool miracle. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he's going to come up with another sign. So Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. He puts his hand inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. If you've ever read anything about lepers and their skin, it was just horrific. You don't even describe it. His hand, skin that was slough off the hand. In this case, that might have been how it would have looked. So he says, put it inside your cloak. Take it out. It looks leprous as snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Another cool miracle. Healing. Defied metaphysics. It doesn't happen. We got great doctors here in, this, in our midst here who can help and heal people. Boom, bang, instantaneous. Leper, boom, nothing. So that wasn't enough. If they won't believe you, God says, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But if they don't believe those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry land, and the water that you shall take out from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right. He didn't show that at this time. But after seeing the staff become a snake and become a staff again, and after seeing leper leprous skin become heal, healed and, and clean again, he has to take God at his, at his word. Is that enough? That should have been enough to convince him, right? Okay, okay, God, I got it. I got the plan. Well, let's go. Let's go charge the hill. Come on, I'm ready. I'm your man. There's the big but again, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Wow. Now God's going to start getting a little frustrated with him, getting a little anxious. Not God doesn't get anxious. He's thinking, what in the world? How much more do I have to do with this man to convince him that he's my man? The Lord said to him, who has made the man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now there go for go, and I will be your mouth and teach you, and you shall speak. Again, another promise. You're going to do it. Okay, you might think... It's probably an, uh, an, an exaggerated self-assessment of negativity here that Moses engages in. Well, it certainly is. He's, he was raised in Pharaoh's court after all. Forty years he'd been with the greatest teachers and taught how to be filled with grace and, and to be very powerful and how you would present yourself to people. He had to have had some abilities, even if he was an introvert. He had to have had some teaching on how, what it meant to be in a court and to communicate with people. It was just an excuse that he gave. So God gave him the challenge. Time to go? Nope. He gives another big but. Verse 13. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Okay, that's enough. God can't take it anymore. He's, now he's just being to totally disobedient. I, send somebody else. I'm not your guy. I'm not your man. I've seen all this stuff that you've done for me, but that's not enough. So now I don't have trust in you, Lord. I don't think you can do it. You're telling me you can do all these things, but essentially he's saying you can't do all these things. 
So God really gets mad. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in heart. So he's prophesying. God is telling Moses how Aaron is going to greet him. He's telling exactly what's going to happen, how the interaction is going to go. It's just a further sign that, that, that Moses has got to say yes. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand the staff with which you see you shall do the signs. So there you go. After that, Moses obeys. There's no big fault at all. No thing, yes, Lord, I'm going. I finally get it. He just, at this point, it's time. He knows. He understands. It took that whole sequence, and God knew in advance it was going to take that whole sequence for that to occur. But God had to put up with some excuses that Moses offered, and I I included them in your uh, bulletin, as a matter of fact. The first excuse was, I'm insignificant. I'm insignificant, Moses said, essentially, in so many words. I can't do it. I'm not your guy. And that's not true. Moses saw himself as a nobody, but God saw him as a somebody, the somebody that he wanted to use to free the Israelites. So I would encourage all of us at times when we think we're insignificant, that we never think that way. I like to think of the expression, and it's not biblical, but I think it has biblical undertones. God doesn't equip the called. He call, no, he doesn't, he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So you may not think you have all the abilities to do what God wants you to do. But if you're God's person for that purpose, he will equip you. He will equip you, and you need to say yes to him. In fact, I remember when I was first this superintendent of, of Des Moines Christian School, I had been the principal of Urbandale High School. And God wanted, was calling me to become a superintendent. I said, God, I don't want any part of that. I don't, ever, I don't want to be a superintendent. I said all along, my whole life, I don't want to be a superintendent. I'm a principal. I like being a high school principal. I like doing what I like doing now, what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm confident. I've got a good situation. But for the first time on my Christian walk, God said, you're going to do something that's not logical and what you envisioned for your own career path because I want you to do it. After about 18 months, I finally figured out that I better get in tune with God because His Holy Spirit was really prompting me to do that, and I needed to be obedient. So in a sense, I'm just like Moses. I'm thinking, I don't have the abilities to do that. I never imagined that for my life. I don't, I don't know if I can be a good superintendent. I, know, I don't know if I ever was really a good superintendent, but for 14 years, he sustained me as the superintendent of DeMar Christian, and I saw God do amazing things in that ministry. So... God will obey, when you're obedient, God will reward you for your obedience, I think. A second excuse he gives, I have no authority. Lord, I'm just a guy hanging out in the ship, in the, with the sheep in the fields for 40 years. I don't even have my own flock. These are Jethro's sheep. How do you tag me as the one for this job? Well, Moses only had to hear from God to say, I am I'd love, I can't wait to go to heaven. I hope God says that at least once. I mean, I don't know if he will. I am. Maybe it's daily. <laughs> Maybe it's hour by hour. Maybe that's, that's the, the top of the hour. I am. Okay, I got it. Like, oh God, I'm here. I'm loving it. It's cool. All he has to do is say to Moses, I am. 
Moses doesn't necessarily have the authority, but God certainly has the authority to work in and through him. The uh, word for God in this context is Yahweh, and it's a verb that means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am. There is no boundary to who God is. He has always existed. There is no past, per se. The lines are cut off. For us, we're born on a day, and we live an earthly life, and our human life is cut down. But for God, there is no beginning, no end. He is the beginning. He is the end. There is no end. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is I am. And that should be enough for Moses to have understood. His third excuse, no one will believe me. <laughs> well, you can kind of understand that, can't you? Cut him a little slack, after all. I just saw a burning bush. He showed me all these signs. He says, Aaron's going to be the spokesperson. We're going to go back over and we're going to face Pharaoh one-on-one. -on -one. He seems pretty powerful. He's in control. All the Israelites are in slavery. And I got to go back and tell the people this? Okay, well, it's a little bit understandable. So it's still an excuse, though. He wanted evidence that he could convince his people that he had walking orders from God. For Moses, it wasn't enough for God to simply promise that he would deliver the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. So what's God's answer to that? I will convince them. I will. It doesn't take too much convincing, does it, to see a, snake tur a, a staff turn into a snake and water turn into blood and, and a leper's hand be healed completely. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. So we need to say yes because God will convince others even if we don't think that he will. And there's so many times that we think in our own minds the way things are going to play out. That's why God tells us not to fear or to worry or to be anxious because so many times we worry or we're anxious about or we're fearful about things that never come to pass. Isn't that true? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that that's true? We take the worst case scenario in our mind, we play it forward and believe that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, sometimes that does happen, so I don't want to discount the fact that there are negative outcomes for situations, but so many times it doesn't happen. And even if it does, God is with you. He will never leave nor forsake you. That's why he tells you never to be afraid because you'll never be alone. One evening, I was a brand new Christian. I stood in front of a large audience in the Urbandale High School Performing Arts Center. Some of those people were very angry. There were 500 people in that auditorium that night, and they were waiting to hear how I was going to lead them through a crisis. I'm 37 years old. I'm five years into my tenure there as the principal. I have some credibility, some street cred for the relationships that I built up and decisions that I'd made in the past. But there were some hot people, and it was, it was, a, it was about racism. There was racism, charges of racism in the, in the student body of Urbandale High School. And I remember how amazing it was. I, I, to this day, I remember that Bill and Diana Fuller and my wife came and sat on the front row. I remember like it was yesterday. They came and sat in the front row of that auditorium. And there I am, the only guy at the podium. This mic goes hot, and I'm thinking, well, okay, what am I going to say? And all I could do is pray, God, Holy Spirit, give me the words. What am I going to say? It was one of those times it was, that I'm, I'm sure that I gave this situation completely to God and let him utter the words through me. And it was about an hour and a half. I was sweating when I got out of there, but I knew that God had given me the words to say. And ultimately that challenge subsided, and we made some really good positive changes in the future that people didn't perceive Urbandale High School as a racist high school. 
God will convince the people when you allow him to give the words that the Holy Spirit give to you to other people, you will be used. Excuse number four, I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. I don't have the charisma. I can't talk well. I'm not eloquent, Moses said. Well, God had an answer to that. I made you. I'll equip you. You might not think you have the ability here, but I'm going to make, it, make this happen. And ultimately, we see how he did. Excuse number five, I don't want to. That's the worst excuse you could ever give to God. That's the most willful disobedience you could ever imagine. Don't go there. Don't go there. God says, go. I'm sending Aaron with you. We're going to make this happen. Say yes, because you're not going to be alone. Again, the big idea. We must become immediately obedient in saying yes to the direction of the Holy Spirit rather than offering excuses. I don't have enough time for you to do the questions. You're sitting around the table. I wanted you to do that. But on your own time, would you look at the four questions that I've listed on the bulletin and think in your own mind, when is there a time that I did not say yes to God immediately when I knew that it was clearly God and the Holy Spirit directly me to do something? And how can I become more immediately obedient to God? You look at the Gospels. When Jesus was walking around on earth and he called the disciples, I remember as a new Christian reading through the Word of God, I remember phrases that were very simple that stood out to me. How did they respond? At once. They followed him at once. Or another phrase that was used, word that was used, immediately. We followed immediately. That's how we should respond to God immediately. We must become immediately obedient, saying yes to the direction of the Holy Spirit, rather than offering excuses. Nick, would you put the uh, slide that I gave you? There's a new book that just came out within the last week. And of course, I saw the title. I thought, I want to read that book. I heard the description of it. That's an awesome book. And it's a real quick read. Of course, for me, it's quicker because I read fast. Those of you know me. But that book's an awesome book. It's about our commitment in the body of Christ to doing the work that God calls us to do as the body of Christ, as Waukee Community Church. Will we be like this? Will we show a quicker progression to get to the point of, I will, I will. Tom Rainer's basically saying, this is the progression we have to go through in our line, and it's basically a progression sort of like Moses went through to the point where he finally says, I will. Well, I could. I suppose I could. That's pretty low-level commitment, isn't it? I could. Do I say, well, I might? Eh, wishy-washy, I might. Anytime your kid comes up and he says, can we do this? And you say, I might. It's pretty much a no. Kid knows that. I understand that. I can. I can. Again, it, it's, you're able, but it doesn't mean you're actually going to do it. I should. I should. As a high school debater, we were taught to what the definition of should is. You had to define actually where the, to define the word should. Should is a word, and I still remember this since I was 16 years old. Should is a word which means ought to, but not necessarily will. In the body of Christ, the things that Jesus calls you to do, the commands of scriptures to be obedient to, I should do those things. All of us could easily stand up right now, the should gang, and say, yeah, I should do those things. But are we? That's Tom Rainer's point. We have to get to the point of saying, I will. God, when you command me, no matter how onerous, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, no matter how many excuses I'm going to throw your way, no matter how many ways I can figure out that this isn't going to play out right, God, if you call me to do that, if you're the little and the large, I'll do, I will. I will. 
Jesus is always is our perfect example. He was perfectly obedient to God. You know, every day he went to God, basically. We have many recorded instances of this. He got alone with him, he prayed, and he listened. He didn't do the talking. We like to pray and we like to do all the talking. Okay, God, bless this, bless that. Here's what I want you to do for me, blah, 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 blah. To have an open hand and an open heart to go to God and say every morning, God, what do you want me to do today? What are your big, what are your big plans for, to be used, to use me in and through me? What do you want to do through me today? That's what Jesus did, didn't he? God gave him his walking order for, those days, for that day, and he went out and did it. He was perfectly obedient. It didn't matter how difficult the task was. It, did, it didn't matter that the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws and the other power mongers were opposed to him, that hated him. And he knew that in his heart. It didn't matter. He spoke the truth. He even called them vipers and whitewashed tombs. He knew that was a big risk, but he knew those are the words that God wanted him to use. And he knew that the actions that he took against anybody or with anyone through healings on the Sabbath or whatever it was that defied the the Jewish culture at that time, it was going to create enemies. But he said yes to God all the time. Immediately, at once he did that. Even at the point when he was in the garden and the night before he was killed. Remember, his humanity took over and he said, Lord, if it be your will, you know, take this cup from me. But he also understood that that was not God's will. And he was perfect. He's perfectly willing for the joy that was set before him to go and endure the suffering of the scourging, to be killed on a cross for each one of us. There's nothing you're going to do in this human life that's more difficult than that. So we might as well, I'm including myself as, as well, I'm preaching to myself, we might as well be immediately obediently to God when he calls us to do something no matter how difficult it is. Finally, Again, one last time, the big idea. We must become immediately obedient in saying yes to the direction of the Holy Spirit rather than offering excuses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, i got to admit, this has been a challenging message for me to preach because I'm convicted. There are times when I don't say uh, yes to you immediately or at once. Lord, I pray that over the course of this sermon series, as we're discovering the lives of people in the Bible who were frail and human and made mistakes and had sin and didn't respond immediately to you, that we can learn from that example, that we would be convicted at the times in the Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is directing us to do something, and we're not immediately obedient. Lord, would you help us to be more obedient? Lord, I don't want anybody to walk out of this room today with any sense of guilt. That's not the purpose of my preaching. Too often we look at our lives as the work we want to complete for you, Lord, and when we fail, we come up short. We're not engaged in the spiritual disciplines or we, we don't fulfill the tasks that you put in front of us. We feel guilty. We feel like we're failures and we, 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 we become defeatists. We, lie, we buy in the lie that Satan whispers in our ears that we're not good enough, that, that our testimony is finished. It's not true, Lord. Mm-hmm. It's not true. We'll help none of us have a works mentality in this, in this room, to be discouraged by the things we haven't done. Lord, help all of us to learn from the times when we should have been more obedient immediately at once and to learn from that and to become more obedient, to be in a greater relationship, a love relationship with you, Lord. And out of that love relationship, the joy that comes from it, the the knowledge of the sacrifice that your son Jesus Christ made on each one of our behalf, that we might know everlasting life because of the death that Jesus died on the cross. 
that he took our sin, on the, he, took, he bore all the sin of all of eternity on that cross that we might be able to be followers of yours. We know we're going to fall short, but Lord, help us to become more like Jesus moment by moment, day by day, as we are conformed to the likeness of the Son. And the one way today that we want to remember very vividly that we would become immediately obedient to your calls on our lives and the purposes you have to work in and through us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We lift up your name. And now we conclude with another opportunity to worship you through song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.